And turn with me now or listen on as I read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, the account of the first deacons. hear God's word. Now, in those days, when the member of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business But we will give ourselves continually uh, to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your word by which we are instructed, instructed and uh, well, by which we are rebuked and corrected and exhorted and encouraged and comforted. In so many ways, your word comes to us, Lord. Let it come to us in these ways, these very ways through the preaching. Instruct us, build us up, teach us, we humbly pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, according to my records, I've preached this text two times already. Not uh, as part of a series on Acts, I've never preached Acts. Uh, I've always wanted to, but I was never sure whether uh, I was up for it. But here we are in Acts, and I noticed that I've preached it twice uh, already. Once, uh, when the need arose for deacons. We were down to one deacon, and two years ago I preached this uh, a sermon on this text, and then another time in an ordination service where we ordained, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a deacon and an elder. Well, it's a wonderful text. Uh, it, 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 if that is any indication to you of how I feel about it, it, it ought to be. It's something, uh, it, it's a text which I think has um, wonderful and helpful truths for the church. One of the things that we are considering again and again in Acts is a portrait of the early church. Uh, and, and, and one of the things that I've been saying, and, and this is something that stands out very clearly in Acts chapter 6, is that this is the church as she should be. It's not her church in her most mature form. In some sense, you could say uh, we're more mature than she was. Uh, but it is a church in her ideal form in the sense that she was alive. There was not a dead orthodoxy. There was a living orthodoxy. But one of the things that you discover, and and this is something that I've stressed many times and then I'll stress again in in the sermon, is that the church at her best is not perfected. She's not glorified. She's, well, she's a church like ours that's struggling and figuring it out. That's what's so clear here. But the amazing thing that we see is that she was able to figure it out more often than not. And in this a pattern was laid down for us that instructs us. What, what we see is not just the church in, in a spiritual state, but a, a well-ordered church, a well-functioning church that was thriving because of it. A church that understood her mission. A church that understood uh, distinctions in office. Uh, the purpose of each office and so on and so forth. 
and uh, especially here, these two offices, uh, the apostles and the deacons, or we could put it in terms that are more relevant and practical in our own setting, namely the minister of the word and the deacons. Now, in those days, the apostles were the ministers of the word, but there is a direct parallel between their ministry and what we find in the pulpit today, as well as the ministry of the deacons. We not only see each operating as they should, but we find their relation to one another. Well, I begin as I did last time I preached this text some two years ago, and I want to paint very briefly a portrait of the early church. And notice uh, her main characteristics, the first of which is she was evangelical. Evangelical in the best sense of the term, in the sense that she was given to gospel witness. Uh, The concern of the early church was uh, to convert as many people as possible. And we see that the Lord was doing that. So the church was also apostolic in the sense that, uh, well, they were given and they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. Also in the sense that the ministry of the apostles uh, played a prominent role in the early church and continues to do so uh, today as we uh, give ourselves to their great work, namely the New Testament. The early church was ecclesiastical in the sense that uh, there was nothing of the rugged individualism that described so much of modern American Christianity, but in their conception, and this is the true biblical conception, was uh, it, it, to be a Christian was to be a member of the church. There was no way to separate these things. And so in their radical commitment to following Jesus as their savior, so they became radically committed to one another. They were given to the communion of the saints. They were ecclesiastical. So they were also, uh, or, or the, the church was pneumatic which is to say the church was given a spiritual power from on high. The church, not just individual believers, but this is a way we have to accustom ourselves to thinking. It's not just the individual who is filled with the spirit, but it is the church that becomes full of the spirit. That's what we have here. And we see what happens as a result when the church is full of the spirit. The church was also, as a result of all of these points, growing. Uh, that's, in fact, the first thing we read uh, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying. Uh, this was a happy occurrence in the early church. We read of so few, 120 turning into a multitude. Finally, the church was one. The church was Catholic. Those are technically different uh, attributes. In the, in the Apostles' Creed, we say one holy uh Catholic and apostolic. Well, I'm placing one and Catholic together in the sense that as as a universal body, she was one. In other words, uh, the thing that we see here was at issue was the inclusion of 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 the Hellenists, not just the Hebrews. Uh, The church was beginning to expand beyond the narrow boundaries of the Jews. And this was her glory, the unity that believers enjoyed together. Of different stripes. There very briefly is a portrait of the early church. She was evangelical. She was apostolic. She was ecclesiastical. She was pneumatic. She was growing. She was one. She was Catholic. There's a second point. There was a problem which arose. The picture thus far. Though not without problems. In Acts chapters 1 through 5 is one of power and progress. 
Of course, not without facing persecution for her witness, as well as troubles from within. But this was rather a sign of her success and an occasion for great rejoicing, as we find these men doing at the end of chapter 5. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Verse 41 of Acts chapter 5. And even the troubles they had within Ananias and Sapphira, was that not uh, a sign of God's presence among them, God's power among them, that God dealt so mightily with these sinners? But don't think... That all was well and easy, for I say again, as I said at the beginning, this church was a church like ours. That's one of the unmistakable impression that one gets when reading the New Testament. Not a church without problems, but a church full of problems. And we should always be encouraged by that. This is not a picture of the church, uh, church glorified, church triumphant. It's a picture of the church militant. And thus it is a picture of the church beset with human weakness. And easily confused and befuddled. They didn't always know what to do. They were often baffled by the problems they faced. They were figuring it out on the fly. A church like ours. Problems uh, arose all the time requiring creative solutions. Often on the fly. Now the challenge in this case, though seemingly trivial... Threatened the church on every point we just considered. The problem was, as we read, that there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. How trivial, you might say, and in some sense I would agree with you, and yet what we find is that all six points uh, that I enumerated were suddenly placed in jeopardy. Uh, I'll just give you a, a, a couple examples. Uh, The church, number two, is apostolic. Well, don't you see that uh, the very issue of the ministry of the apostles was thrown into jeopardy here? The church was ecclesiastical. Well, the church's fellowship was harmed. The church was growing. Well, uh, we read in verse 7 that she began to grow again, as though to say uh, the, the growth, the progress was halted for now. The church was one. She was Catholic. Well, here the church was divided all over this one seemingly trivial matter. We could describe uh, the matter like this. It was threefold. It was that of neglect, number one, that of division, number two, and that of asking too much of too few, all of which are very common. Neglect division and asking too much of too few. Remember also that this occurs in the context of a series of problems facing the early church, which Luke outlines in chapters 4 through 6. There is the first outbreak of persecution in chapter 4. There is uh, the problem of of internal strife, Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. Later on in chapter 5, another wave of persecution. And now a third kind. We've had uh, external and internal, but now a third kind of challenge facing the early church, what John Stott simply calls distraction. And how dangerous this can be. I hope I hope to convince you of that. That distraction is perhaps the most dangerous of the three. Let me make several observations about this problem. First of which is that this problem arose from a prior solution to another problem. If you remember in chapter 4, there were those who were in need, and here was the solution. 
nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all were possessors of lands or houses, uh, who were possessors of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as they had need. Well, that sounds great, uh, but quickly we realize that uh, this program was unsustainable, expecting the apostles to be preachers and men of prayer, and at the same time, essentially, uh, ministers of social welfare within the church was simply asking too much of them. It proved to be too much in the end. And so this stirred up old animosities and suspicions and had the potential to become a major source of division in the early church. The Hellenists and the Hebrews did not get along. And it wasn't as though bringing them together in the church instantly resolved that. It took very little, we discover, uh, to bring about this complaint. You're showing favoritism. You're looking after the Hebrews. Of course you are. But you're ignoring us Hellenists. It's just what we expected. The reality was, in all likelihood, to be fair to these men, that their, uh, that their neglect of the Hellenist widows was far more innocent. The apostles, once more, simply couldn't do it all. But it had the appearance of favoritism and neglect. Matthew Henry says, In the best-ordered churches in all the world, there will still be something amiss some maladministration or other, some grievance, or at least some complaint. There's an obvious similarity here between this and what happened to Moses in the wilderness. In fact, I don't want to get too technical here. I I didn't even take the trouble to look into this technicality myself, but I say on the authority of the commentaries that uh, apparently the way that this is phrased uh, exactly mirrors one of those incidents. If you look at the Septuagint, that is the Greek Old Testament, that in essence, the multitude was grumbling against the prophet. And that's exactly what was happening here. The multitude was complaining. They were grumbling against God's men. Another thing I would notice, and I would attach a special importance to this, as I said I would, John Stott's Third category of danger, that of distraction, and that is how easily ministers become distracted. And as a result, the church loses her focus. Now, this is something which especially stands out in the 20th century, what we call the social gospel. Or in the 21st century, what we call social justice, which is just another word for the social gospel. It's exactly the same thing. Uh, in my estimation, the trouble that occurred in the 20, 20th century is not that the, the, the ends of these men and of the church were not noble. It's that they had completely lost their focus. They had fallen into concerns of social welfare, not only in the church, but beyond. And they ceased to be men of prayer and men of the word. They ceased to preach and they began uh, to be those who administered a social and not a spiritual gospel. Well, that's just one example But you see, this isn't just a 20th century phenomenon. This is a danger which has always confronted the church. And it's interesting to notice that this, uh, the danger of distraction tends to take this particular form. Again, that of social welfare rather than spiritual preaching. Something like that presents itself as a kind of temptation. 
Whenever the church gives into this temptation, she loses her focus, she loses her glory, and all of these wonderful attributes that I describe in the portrait of the early church are lost. But do you see this has been happening since the inception of the early church? This is always the danger, this is always the temptation. And whenever I think of this, I, I think of Machen. I come back to Machen, and, and I think of his great message. The way he described it was the spirituality of the church, or you could describe it as the doctrine of the two kingdoms, or you could just describe it as the doctrine of the church and the task of the preacher. I'll, I'll just give you two examples uh, from two of the places uh, that he spoke. You remember that he was ministering in, in, in days of the Great Depression. The question was, what's the church to do? In the face of such great need uh, and even hunger, what's the task of the church? What's the response of the church to be? Is it to be one of social welfare? Are the ministers of the word to wait on tables? This is what he says in the responsibility of the church in the new age. He says, in the second place, you cannot expect from a true Christian church any official pronouncements upon political or social questions of the day, and you cannot expect cooperation with the state in anything involving the use of force. The function of the church in its corporate capacity is of an entirely different kind. Its weapons against evil are spiritual, not carnal. And by becoming a political lobby through the advocacy of political measures, whether good or bad, the church is turning aside from its proper mission. There's the key thought. She's become distracted, in essence, he's saying. Her proper mission, he goes on, which is to bring to bear upon human hearts the solemn and imperious, yet also sweet and gracious appeal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, that's exactly it. The church needs ministers. It needs preachers of the word. It doesn't need political advocates. It doesn't need ministers of social welfare. At the end of Christianity and liberalism, this is what he says. He says, whatever solution there may be, one thing is clear. There must be somewhere, by the way, he's speaking of weary souls. Weary souls, wearied, he says in an, uh, later on in this, by the warfare of the world. And what, what will they find when they come into the church? This is what he says. There must be somewhere groups of redeemed men and women who, get, who can gather together humbly in the name of Christ to give thanks to him for his unspeakable gift and to worship the Father through him. Such groups alone can satisfy the needs of the soul. But such congregations, he says, in many cities are difficult to find. Weary with the conflicts of the world, one goes into the church to seek refresh refreshment for the soul. And what does one find? Alas, too often one finds only the turmoil of the world. The preacher comes forward not out of a secret place of meditation and power, not with the authority of God's word permeating his message, not with human wisdom pushed far into the background by the glory of the cross, but with human opinions about the social problems of the hour or easy solutions of the vast problem of sin. Such is the sermon. And then perhaps the service is closed by one of those hymns, a breathing out angry passions of 1861, which are to be found in the back part of the hymnals. Thus, the warfare of the world has entered even into the house of God. And sad indeed is the heart of the man who has come seeking peace. Is there no refuge from the strife? I like especially how he says the warfare of the world has entered even into the household of God. That is precisely what the apostles were facing. And that's what the church has been facing ever since. 
The warfare of the world has indeed entered the house of God. And what is our response to be? Well, here is the proposed solution. It is that of delegation. So that nothing would be neglected. These were men, as I hope to stress in the next point, who knew their mission. These were men who were called of God and they had no liberty in the matter. They knew, as Paul said, and as Jeremiah said, well, is me if I don't preach the gospel. The truth is they weren't preaching. They were distracted. They were consumed with administration. What was the solution? Well, the solution wasn't let me be clear. It wasn't to say, you know, this is actually not important. And so let's forget about that. I want you to stop complaining and we're going to go on preaching and that's going to be that. That isn't the solution. It's very useful to see this. And I love the solution. The solution is we're going to delegate. Let us do the preaching and find someone else to do this other ministry. And so they didn't say, you know, the thing is unimportant. No, not at all. They said this. It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we we may appoint over this business. When it comes to the question of uh, meeting the physical needs of those within the church, let's just leave aside the question of the needs of those outside the church, since that wasn't the issue here, though it was and became the issue in the 20th century, but simply the question of whether the physical needs of the saints is something that ought to be ministered to, that is a, the, the, the answer to that question is absolutely, de- definitely. But the answer is also that the ministers are not meant to do it. And so what they were doing in, a, in reality, and this is fascinating to see, is precisely what Moses did in, uh, I think it was Numbers, uh, when he said, I can't do it all, uh, let's, let's form the office of the elder. And it was the Lord who suggested this to him. And, and, and so, so he had these 70 elders to help him. It's the same thing here. It was too much for the leaders of the church to do all this. So here, let's institute the office of the deacon, as Moses had done with the office of the elder. They delegated. That is an important principle of leadership. The second thing they did was they renewed their commitment to the ministry and to their calling. Verses 2 and 4. These are a kind of theme verse of any minister. They said it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Verse 2. Verse 4. We will give ourselves or I think the King James or another translation says we will devote ourselves continually to prayer And to the ministry of the word. In the midst of this dilemma, what occurred to them was not the need to wait on tables, not personally, but the importance of their own calling. And they call it a devotion. We'll give ourselves to it. We'll devote ourselves to it. Why is this so important? That the ministers are men The ministers of the word, because deacons are ministers too. Let me be clear about that. So I'll try to be more specific that the ministers of the word. Why is it so important that they devote themselves to prayer and to preaching? Well, this is uh, to answer this question gets at the principle, uh, the principal task of the church and of her ministers. You remember what uh, what 
Jesus said to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That, that wasn't just the task of the apostles, you see. That was the task of the church. It was a matter of gospel witness. It was a matter of all six points that we considered at the beginning of the sermon. And there was nothing, no need, however pressing, which had any right or any ability uh, to to jeopardize that as their calling and as the church's mission. And it's precisely that that Machen was emphasizing in those uh, two places, Christianity and liberalism and the responsibility of the church in the New Age. The principal task of the church is that of gospel witness. It's that of preaching. That isn't to say there's nothing else. I'm not saying that. Neither was Machen, neither is Luke. But that is to say that it's the principal task. And so I put it like this. That the church needs men who know their mission. That's what we need in the pulpit today. That's what we need emphasized in the seminaries, though I can tell you sadly that isn't always what's emphasized in the seminaries. We need men like Moses and the apostles who are willing to delegate in order to maintain their focus and their calling from God. In other words, men uh, who are unwilling to compromise in this. Men who don't try to do it all. You see, that's always the temptation that the minister faces. It's also the temptation the church faces. Let the minister do it. Or the minister says, you know, I'll just do it. But, but there's a real danger here. And it's the danger which God's word confronts us with and which experience confronts us with over and over again. And it's that the ministers become distracted. And what happens when the ministers who are entrusted with the, the task of preaching the word, become consumed and distracted. What happens when, uh, well, you say they still have two sermons to preach, but they were too busy during the week to prepare anything worth preaching? What happens to the church as a result? And what happens to the world if that gospel light ceases to shine? These are very pressing questions, you see. And they get at the whole, uh, the whole question and the task of, of the church. Now, notice what their priorities were. The priorities were twofold. And you say, was the list any longer than that? And in a sense, I'm prepared to say, no, it really was just these two things. I would also attach great significance to the order, though I had been a Christian for a long time before this ever dawned on me. And it was, well, not surprised. It was as a result of listening to a sermon by Morris Roberts on this text. Prayer and preaching. Just those two things. We'll devote ourselves continually as though to say, not only is there nothing else, but this is, this is what we'll be doing always. We'll be praying and we'll be preaching. The ministry, we'll be ministering the word. We'll be men of prayer and men of the word. Now you ask the question, can that really be it? Is that really the, 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 the two central tasks of the minister of the world, word? And the answer is yes. That really can be it. And when they are, the results can be tremendous. It's amazing when you read, and this is something I love to do, when you read the history of the church and of the great preachers, what you always find is that these were men like Moses. These were men like the apostles. These were men who knew their calling. And they were devoted to these two things. I've, I've recently been rereading the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones for a third time. I know that, that will surprise precisely no one. But the... When I describe that man, having read so much about him, that's precisely how I would describe him in these two ways. He was a man of prayer 
And he was a man of the word. I can't think of anything to add to the list. It really was just those two things. And what a mighty minister he was. I think as you study the history of the church and as you look at the great preachers, that is what you will invariably see. Men of prayer and men of the word. Do you realize that when that is the case, the results will be tremendous? Whereas uh, the inverse of that statement is also true. Whenever those two cease to be the priority and the focus, that the results will be disastrous. Look at the church in the 20th and 21st centuries, and you will see that in a very painful and a very obvious way. Well, let's look at this list for a moment. The importance of preaching is well established at this point. I've been speaking of it steadily. But why prayer? We will give ourselves continually to prayer. Well, this is a point that I've been stressing throughout the book of Acts. The thing that we want to know is what these men knew. We want to know the power of the spirit. We want to be full of the spirit as a church. We want to sit under preaching Uh, which is full of the Spirit. These men were filled with the Spirit, and so they preached with boldness. But it wasn't just the men who preached, it was also those who heard. The people were blessed mightily, and they became bold. And not only that, but many were converted as a result. What was the secret? Well, I've been stressing throughout, you can't manufacture these things. The only way that any of us can ever hope to know what they knew is through prayer. Praying for the Spirit praying for the power of God to descend upon us. Pray that we might be filled with the Spirit and then wait. Wait and see what God will do. But go on praying until he does it. And so these are men, I would say, who knew God. They were men who walked with God. They were men who were full of God because they were men who were full of prayer. They were devoted continually to the ministry of prayer. And that is something that you should always want in a minister. But I think you you would know, uh, and and it wouldn't be difficult to imagine that the minister is a man like so many of you. And when you become too busy, what's the first thing to go? It isn't always the reading of the word, it's prayer. It seems uh, that there is, as I've said in earlier sermons in Romans chapter 8, there's this natural uh, aversion to prayer that we all face. The minister is not exempt here. But notice at the same time the way these two things go together. Prayer and the ministry of the word. You never want to separate them. Never. You don't want a man who's always studying the word but never praying. And you also want to maintain the order. What's a minister? Well, first, a minister of the word, again, let me be clear. A deacon's a minister too. In fact, the word means minister. A minister of the word is a man of prayer. And so I'm, I'm talking about the way in which these two things must always go together. If you want to sit under good preaching, you want to sit under a man who's full of the spirit and a man who is full of the spirit is a man who can pray and who always prays, who prays without ceasing. He's never too busy. He's never too distracted to pray. Let me try to put it in a personal way. I've known many men who could preach and yet who did not last in the ministry. It's amazing to say I haven't been a minister that long. I've only been a minister some 12, 13 years. And yet I'm amazed to see how many men who are no longer ministers. They didn't last in the ministry. It wasn't because they couldn't preach. And so why, I wonder, did this happen? Why are these men no longer standing? 
Well, was it not perhaps that they devoted themselves to the ministry of the word, but not to prayer? They became busy. They became distracted. J.C. Ryle says, and I agree with him in this entirely, that you will never see a man who falls into sin. That that was not preceded by a period in which he ceased to pray. It becomes important not only for the minister, but the church to share in this priority along with her ministers. The question is equally one for the church. The question is this, and this is one of the questions that faces the church in the 21st century, just as it did in the 20th and in the first. What kind of ministry would you have your ministers to do? Can you say that it is not desirable that that they preach or excuse me, that they leave the word of God and serve tables? No, that's not desirable. Can you say that we want the kind of men who can say this, that we will give ourselves continually to prayer in the ministry of the word? Is that the priority not only of the ministers, but of the church? And if that is so, how much are you prepared to relieve him of other things? This is where the the whole question of the office of the deacon comes in. And frankly, the elders as well. What is their purpose? Well, in one sense, you could say, going back to Moses and then up to the apostles here, looking at these two offices, that of the elder and of the deacon, that their purpose is to relieve the minister of the word of these other things so that he might devote himself continually to the ministry of prayer and the preaching of the word. If you bog him down with administration, everyone will suffer. And in sharing this priority with the apostles, do you do so with the hope that God will richly bless the churches that do as here? But then there was a third proposed solution, and that was let the church decide. I also find something very instructive here when they say, you decide. Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation that we may appoint. Verse three, verse five. The the, the people were pleased and that uh, then they chose the seven men. Let the church decide. We notice something here again about a well-ordered and well-functioning church. The apostles' interest was preaching and prayer. It was not ruling the church with an iron fist. That is not a principle of, of biblical leadership. They didn't say, this is my show. I'm going to decide everything. Once again, they were pleased to delegate. It is good, the apostles were saying, and it's good, I am saying, for the church to have a say in these things. For the church to choose and to decide who the deacons and who the elders and who the minister will be. And here was the result as a fourth point. The result was that men were chosen, verse 5. They were chosen by the church and they were ordained by the apostles. Again, this is a good principle for us to follow. Nominated, elected by the people, ordained by the elders. But most especially, we read in verse 7 then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. The sense we get here is that the church began once more to prosper. She was hindered but she, uh, for a time, but she was hindered now no more. Now, there are some who view verses 1 through 6 as a unit, and verse 7 as something altogether different. In other words, uh, those who see these two things as something separate rather than as joined together. But I see verse 7 as directly connected to the preceding material in verses 1 through 6. In other words, uh, what he's saying is, uh, 
the word of God spread now that this was dealt with. The word of God could not spread, in other words, as long as these men were preoccupied and bogged down with administration. But now that they weren't, the word began to spread again. The disciples began to multiply. The church was growing again. The church was shining in her glory as she should and as she ought. Do you see how important these things are? The ministry of the word unhindered. The ministry of the deacons as well. Ministering to those in need among the saints. With both in place, the church was well positioned to go on with her work. And so she did. The principle is twofold. The church needs deacons. The church cannot thrive without them. But the church also needs ministers who aren't trying to be deacons. Let me say that again. The church needs ministers who aren't trying to be deacons. I know ministers who are trying to be deacons. That's not right. We need ministers who are ministers and deacons who are deacons. Let me look in the next place at the office of the deacon. We've been looking really at the office of the minister of the word. Now we look at the office of the minister of the the saints in their need. We look first at the office itself, its purpose and its function. It's eminently a practical office. It concerns the physical needs of the saints. This is something that the early church was concerned about. People were selling their property. They were uh, giving it to the church so that it could be distributed to those in need. But this became a question of uh, practically that of administration. And so the deacons were those uh, who who handled this. Uh, Let me just read what our book says. The book of the book, uh, the form of government on the chapter. Chapter 11. Let's see. Chapter 11, deacons. The scriptures designate the office of deacon as a distinct and perpetual office in the church. Deacons are called to show forth the compassion of Christ in a manifold ministry of mercy toward the saints on behalf of the church. To this end, they exercise in the fellowship of the church a recognized stewardship of care and of gifts for those in need or distress. This service is distinct from that of rule in the church. It's a practical office. But let me also stress And I've been stressing this ever since I think it was 2016 when we did a deacons conference here, that the office of the deacon is a practical office, but it's not a worldly office. It's a spiritual office and and uh, it's a ministry. And thus it needs to be filled by men who are spiritual. And thus we come to the qualifications, the kind of men they were. Well, what kind of men were they seeking out here? Not just men who were practical, not just a man who, who, who knew how to use a hammer uh, or who could administrate, uh, but men, we read, in fact, who were full of the spirit and of wisdom, men who were full of faith. You know, the danger that we face is that we so often uh, place the minister of the word and even the elders on a pedestal and then we say, let the lesser sorts be the deacons. Now, we think that about others, but we also think it about ourselves. I desire to be an elder, not a deacon. Well, the thing that amazes me here is that the best men became the deacons here. I would also say the best men became elders. But there was no sense of hierarchy in the sense that the better men became elders and the lesser men became deacons. We have to banish that thought. We need to see and to realize that it is no dishonor to be a deacon. It is a great honor. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. Let us see also their usefulness to the church and her ministers. This is a key point. Again, 
What happens to the church when she doesn't have spiritual men occupying the office of the deacon? She is hindered greatly on every point. Let us also see their prominence in the early church. This is something uh, that Luke is concerned here to highlight in chapters 6 through 8. The prominence of the first deacons. Stephen and Philip especially playing a prominent role in the ensuing narrative. And this is highly instructive to us who tend to neglect this office and to think little of it as Presbyterians. And so are we surprised to find when the best men occupied the office of the deacon that they did far more. They didn't just wait on tables. They did far more. And as we keep reading, we'll see the kind of things they did. The first martyr was a deacon. Philip, chapter 8, was an evangelist. These men were actively involved in the ministry of the church, far beyond what we sometimes think. Let me close by making these four practical exhortations. Do you see first what God can do with men like this? What he can do with deacons who are full of the spirit. Men who are full of faith. Number two, do you see how ready they were to answer the call? How eagerly these men become, became deacons. Again, I speak to the church and say, would you eager, eagerly answer the call if called upon? Number three, or, or would you count it a slight and a dishonor? You say, no, I'd rather be an elder. I'll wait for that. Do you see, number three, how alike they were to their Savior? They were animated by the same spirit. In a sense, you could say Jesus Christ, he was a deacon. He was a deacon in the sense that he was prepared to serve and not to be served. That's what a deacon is. A deacon is someone who is mindful of others. Such was the spirit of Jesus Christ. Such is the spirit you find in true deacons. And so I say, fourthly, hold the deacons in esteem, not just the ministers of the word, not just the elders, but the deacons as well. And realize, again, that perhaps the best men ought to be deacons, at least some of them, not just elders. It is no dishonor. And thus, let us also consider, along with the early church, who among us might be worthy of such a call. For the church is always in need of good deacons. Amen. And let us return now our praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 538. Please stand.